welcome to what is already the third episode of our brand new UKIS ITEL podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. And I'm absolutely delighted today to be able to welcome Aileen McCarg, who's a professor of public law and human rights at Durham University and a particular expert in devolution and the UK's territorial constitution. Aileen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. And without further ado, I'm going to crack on because there's quite a lot I want to get through with you today. I want to start with Brexit. And I suppose the first question is, have we had long enough now to fully understand and appreciate the long-term effect that Brexit is having on the UK's territorial constitution? Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no. And we, we, we can say with confidence that, that Brexit has had more than a temporary effect on the territorial constitution. Um both in terms of the powers of the devolved institutions and, and the creation of a new legal architecture for the UK internal market, and in relation to the more general constitutional context in which devolution operates and the, the rise at a much more assertive UK level. I, I think enough time has passed to be able to see that you know, that was not just a temporary blip to deal with the abnormal circumstances of Brexit. Um, but has quite clearly now spilled over into other issues so as really to create a new normal. So so we're seeing uh, many more disputes between the devolved and UK levels really across the board, um, more disputes about legislation affecting devolved competences, increased examples of UK ministers taking powers in devolved areas, a lack of consultation and notification, and of course... Um, the increasingly assertive use of the kind of various powers of supervision that the UK ministers have over the devolved level. But I think we still can't say for certainty where all this might end. Of course, the boundaries of the state may remain highly contested, both in Scotland and in Northern Ireland. Wales is also increasingly, what you might say, indie curious. And of course, we don't yet know what effect the change of government at UK level or devolved level might have on anything. OK, I mean, but cynically, as a, as a political scientist, I look at what's happened since 2016. And I almost want to say that Brexit has, has made clear where power ultimately resides, and that is in Westminster. And for all the niceties of devolution, we've been sort of given a crash course in power politics from London. Do you think that's fair? Or am I, as lawyers always accuse me of being oversimplifying? So... I mean, devolution was obviously premised on the continued uh, existence of the sovereignty of the UK Parliament, but that coexisted and was held in check with an alternative um, political narrative about the importance of, of devolution and its place in the constitution, which really held that sort of legal um, th that legal position in check. So there was always a tension there, uh, and those competing narratives obviously always had the potential. To, to clash of Brexit exposed those tensions on an issue which was of particularly significant practical relevance and particularly high um, political importance. But it could have come up in other areas. Human rights reform is an area of where it could have and could still clash, you know, on something like the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, a relatively narrow um, issue of policy diversion. Even that sort of thing has the, the potential to create uh, to create significant tension. So, I mean, you would hope that in a kind of more functional territorial constitution, um, greater steps might have been taken to avoid that conflict coming to a head. There was no necessity for David Cameron to hold the, the Brexit referendum, for instance. Um, but the potential for conflict was certainly 
always there. And where, you know, when push came to shove, I think it was probably always likely, um, given the asymmetric nature of the UK's constitution, that the that the UK wide majority would would use its um, its legal powers to assert its will over um, the wishes of of majorities in the devolved nation. You don't have to answer this if it makes you uncomfortable to answer it. But is is there a sense? I mean, I certainly get a sense that conservative governments have sort of tried to use post Brexit uncertainty in a sense to change and reform the UK territorial settlement. So I, I guess if there's different things going on there, um, to some extent, I think the, the hoarding to the centre was a way of attempting to deal with complexity. You know, Brexit was a huge political, um, legal, practical, administrative headache for the UK government. And by cutting out the devolved levels, except insofar as they were kind of forced to take account of the particular situation in Northern Ireland, that, that could be seen as simply a way of, of dealing with complexity. But the, there are obviously other currents in the uh, Conservative Party which are actively hostile to devolution, which have a much more unitarist understanding of the, of the Constitution and really a kind of a historical understanding of the nature of the UK constitution. I'm constantly struck by some, by the intolerance of diversity from some conservative com- commentators, which kind of seems completely ignorant of the fact that diversity has always been with us. It's not. It's not a. It's not a new thing since 1999. It, it has always been a feature of the UK's territorial constitutions. So something like the 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 census that Scotland could do for people saying. Scotland should never have been allowed to run its own census, except ever since there's been a census, it's always been run separately in Scotland. So, yeah, but there, there's there's different things to want to think. And sensitivities seem to have been inflamed. I'm trying to be, remain disciplined here because there's quite a lot to go through. And I want to turn now to the Supreme Court uh, judgment on uh, Indy Ref 2. I suppose it's I suppose it's fair to say that to most people that, that decision didn't come as a surprise, but was there anything about the judgment that did surprise you? Um, so I agree with you. It's not particularly surprising. I, I mean, a, a lot of commentators, legal commentators, um, had said they thought that the court would refuse to accept the reference at all. As you know, it came to court by a, a rather unusual route, so they would refuse to accept the reference and therefore refuse to pronounce on the um, the question about whether... Um, Holyrood had the competence to run a unilateral referendum. I thought that they would answer that question, and I thought they would answer it irrespective of whether they thought that the um, the reference had been properly made or not. And I, I thought that because, um, you know, it was clearly an issue that was not going to go away, and it was something that would come back to the court probably by some other route if they didn't answer it then. So I think that wasn't surprising. It wasn't surprising given the way in which the courts have tended to, to address devolution disputes, certainly over the last 10 years. It wasn't surprising that they found that it was out with competence. Maybe slightly more surprising that they addressed the SNP's arguments on the international right of self-determination, given that they, the SNP uh, weren't represented at the hearing. And so those arguments hadn't played any part at all in the um, in the hearing of the case. But But again, having addressed them, not surprising that they rejected them. And not surprising at all that the court didn't then go on to say, you know, and 
anything about what the constitutional route to independence uh, would be. It didn't do the same thing that the Supreme Court of Canada did in the Quebec secession reference. I think it was completely unrealistic to expect that the court would do something like that off off its own back. I mean, there's some people have expressed reservations about the fact that there are politicians who've used the court, if you like, as quasi-political instruments. Does that make you uncomfortable or, is that, or do you see that as an intrinsic part of the purpose of judicial systems to play that kind of role? Um, I do have reservations about increasing resort to the courts to resolve political questions. The difficulty is that sometimes there are serious legal questions to be resolved at the heart of political disputes. And sometimes the court is the only, you know, resort to the courts is the only way out of a political impasse. And I, I would see um, the reference, the NDREF reference to the Supreme Court really is falling into that camp. There was an issue to be resolved and there was no other way of, of, of resolving it. Um, it was a way of moving things forward. But you know, there are a number of reasons to be concerned about about this kind of process. We should be concerned, first of all, um, when people feel they have no option, but to resort to the courts, you know, because their voices aren't being heard in the political arena, um, or because they don't trust or accept the outcome of political processes. Um, particularly striking over the past few years in, is politicians increasingly resorting to the court. There were very, very few examples of that. At GB level, um, until very recently, but it's, it's an increasing phenomenon. We should also be concerned about people promoting very weak legal cases for transparently political purposes, very often uh, using other people's money to do so. Um, and, you know, we need to be concerned about about the impact on the courts themselves. The courts are pretty good at filtering out weak cases, but that can have an adverse impact on other people if if they tighten the rules on standing, for example, or, or they become more restrictive in the kinds of cases they're willing to, to entertain. That has broader effects on perfectly legitimate cases. And it also does bring the courts into you know, the arena of political controversy where they're obviously very, very uncomfortable. The, the, the difficulty is always in trying to draw a distinction between those those legitimate uses and illegitimate uses in a way that doesn't simply map onto cases that I like and cases I don't like. Um, and that's hard to do. But I think it's it, it's equally implausible to suggest that um, you know the, the 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 judicial process can never be abused. Clearly, the current leadership of the Supreme Court we are clearly concerned about the threat to the institutional legitimacy of the courts. And they are trying to um, to, to counteract the perceptions uh, that they are political actors. Yeah, I mean, just sort of building on this idea of sort of contestation, uh, I mean, it always strikes me that in this country, the role of the courts, in fact, the role more broadly of liberal democracy is not particularly well understood. If you compare reactions to controversial court judgments here to say in the United States, if you take, you know, Gore versus Bush back in at the end of that election where the American people just seem to shrug and accept the fact that the Supreme Court has ruled. Do we think we have a particular problem here with people not getting what liberal democracy is? I think sometimes people have unrealistic expectations of of the courts. I mean, maybe that goes both ways. So unrealistic expectations perhaps sometimes about the ability to 
um, to, you know, to, to, to separate out legal matters from political matters, especially in the constitutional arena where you're often dealing with fairly general principles or um, the unprecedented examples that, you know, that, that require a degree of creativity in order to get to an answer. Um, and on the other side, there's unrealism, unrealism about what kind of remedies the courts can, can, can provide. So something I've noticed in some of the Brexit cases, some of the, the hopeless Brexit cases, is when, when judges dismiss those, the judges themselves become the problem. And, and you know, the judges themselves are biased or, or, or in some way prejudiced against the, against the case. So, you know, there's a, tra there's a danger in transferring the expectations of the political arena into a different arena. Uh, but at the same time, law and politics are not and never can be terse and separate. So it's, it's, it's understanding the kind of subtle and nuanced stage of that relationship that, that is important, but also very difficult to get across to a public that's not particularly well educated in these areas on these issues. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And when it comes to that link between politics and law, I mean, there was a period where government was using some quite incendiary language about the judiciary. And there are tentative signs it's rowing back from that now. It seems like the Bill of Rights bill might be shelved. Do you get the sense that things have changed? And is that because courts have become more deferential to the executive or or just a more conciliatory style under the Sunak government? There's an awful lot there, I'm sorry. So there has been some sort of change, um, I think, in some of the ways in which the courts are, are approaching the task. If you if you read the um, evidence sessions for that Lord Reed and Lord Hope, President, Deputy President of the Supreme Court, have every year um, with the, the House of Lords Constitution Committee, you can also see them, you know, expressly saying we are concerned about what's happening and we are concerned to um, educate people about the proper role, uh, the proper role of the court. Lower down, you've also seen some some sort of backlash um, against the more hopeless cases. So, so tightening rules on standing, um, tightening some procedural rules, uh, more uh, aggressive use of cost orders. So again, courts are never keen on what they see as as hopeless cases, and so doing what they can to 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 deter it. I mean, in terms of of the. Uh, reforms being promoted by by the UK government. I mean, the, the difficulty was that the, the processes that they they followed, both in relation to judicial review reform and human rights reform, didn't produce the result they wanted. So they, in both cases, they had independent reviews, which more or less said everything is fine, no need for fundamental reform. Though. They kind of accepted that in relation to judicial review. In relation to human rights, well, they tried to, to press ahead with more uh, fundamental reform anyway, but that has you know, come, off, uh, come off the rail because the bill that was published is a very, very bad bill. And if, whilst they're not prepared to grasp the nettle of, of leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, there is limits to what they can, can achieve um, domestically by uh, messing around with, this, with the human rights act. So, you know, that, those proposals have been almost universally condemned uh, and hopefully 
will stay um, on the back burner. So this is what people of my generation know as an intermission. So while you grab your Kia Aura and your vanilla ice cream, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter because there you'll figure out everything we're doing and get yourself places to our exciting range of events. Subscribe now. Turning now to something perhaps a bit more specific, which is the Brown Commission on the UK's future. I think I'm right in saying you were quoted as saying the report was surprisingly vague. Can you elucidate a little bit what you meant, what you meant by that and in what respects it was vague? Yeah, so, so it was vague. <laughs> Uh, my focus was was on the territorial constitution aspects, but this applies to other other aspects as well. So, in relation to territorial constitution, you've got some quite detailed uh, recommendations on English devolution, but for Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, what is being proposed is mainly at the the, the level of general constitutional architecture, and and the proposals fall into two. Third, two categories. So there's, there's, there's various proposals for new statutory duties and statutory statements, a statement of the purposes of the UK, um, a, a, a principle of subsidiarity, a, a duty of solidarity, a duty to rebalance. You can obviously rebalance the UK. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's this proposal for reform of the House of Lords um, to create a new second chamber which will act as a constitutional guardian, and in particular, a guardian of the permanence of the evolution and the operation of the Sewell Convention. Now, that first set of proposals, the general duty, is very, very vague. There's no detail at all, really, on how these will work, how they'll be enforceable, how they'll interact with one another, how they'll interact with the existing um, devolution statutes. And on the, the House of Lords reform, there is there are big gaps as well. There's gaps around composition of the new chamber. So there's very little said on composition. It's to be elected on a regional basis on a different principle to the House of Commons. But that's about it. And in particular, if this new chamber is to, to act, to be able to act as a protector for the devolved nation, it seems to me that it has to have... Um, disproportionately high representation from the devolved nation. But that issue is just not, it's not addressed at all. It's not clear beyond a devolution context. It's not clear what other statutes or other constitutional principles would be encompassed. Um, there is a reference to the possibility of overriding the Lord's veto, but no details on what that, but you know, what form that should take. So, you know, it, it's really a very long way from a fully worked out blueprint for 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 second chamber reform. So in that sense, I mean, if I if I can sort of read between the lines, you're effectively saying that actually acting on these proposals is going to take a lot more work. And you know, Starmer doesn't if, if he if he does win the next election doesn't come to power then with a clear plan because there's an awful lot of filling out of the details needed. Yeah, I mean, I, there, I mean, I think there's a recognition that that more consultation is needed but my sense is it's not just consultation on the details it's consultation on the principle as well um and so some of this you know even at the level of principle might not survive we've already seen pushback against the idea of an elected second chamber not least from um, the speaker of the house of commons uh and and i think we would all have a healthy degree of skepticism given the history of house of Lords reform about whether fundamental reform is um, is going to fly. 
there, there are obvious there are some disadvantages to this proposal. I mean that the there is the objection to an elected session chamber is, is is always that you undermine the ability of a House of Lords to to act as a revising chamber, which the Brown Commission wants to to keep. But you know, not only are they proposing a wholly elected chamber, they're also proposing to strip this new second chamber of its delaying powers for ordinary legislation. So it's going to be a weaker a weaker body and, and you know I remain to be persuaded that a majority of people will see the potential advantages in terms of protecting the territorial constitution as outweighing the disadvantages in terms of weakening the role of the second chamber as a as a revising chamber. So I think I think that it remains to be seen what, if anything, comes of that. Can we turn briefly to the gender recognition reform bill in Scotland and not the details of the bill itself, but actually more the constitutional standoff it's led to between the Scottish government and the government in London. And can you just explain to our listeners briefly what Section 35 is and why its deployment has caused such a big row between those two governments? Okay, so so Section 35 is a power which allows UK ministers to direct the presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament not to, prevent, not to present a bill that's passed through the Parliament uh, for royal assent. So it's it's in effect a, a veto power. Though it's not an absolute veto because um, because the Holyrood has the opportunity to reconsider the bill, um, to possibly amend it, or possibly just repass it again, saying we like it the way it is. And if they do that, that cancels the Section Thirty Five order. But um, the UK government could then reimpose it. So it, it is a it is a, a veto power in effect. Um, and it's controversial because it's a veto power. And it was always regarded as a nuclear option to be, uh, you know, a safeguard for absolutely the most serious cases and, you know, possibly not even usable at all in tactical terms. But you know, here we have it being having be used, and and of course against the background of increasing assertiveness by the UK government, to, you know, to, as I said earlier, to kind of get involved in in devolved matter. Do do I detect from your tone that you think the use of Section Thirty Five was slightly disproportionate? Um, so I think there are a number of problems with this. So the so one is it's it is presented by some people as as the only option. The UK government this bill was so terrible. The UK government had no option but to set it step in and veto it. No, that's that's self evidently not true. Um, it it's a discretionary power. So uh, it's a political judgment to uh, to use it, uh, even if the legal tests for the use of the power are met. It doesn't have to be have to be exified. There are other things that the UK government could have done to deal with the consequence, what it sees as the adverse consequences of, of the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. And I think any of those would have been less um, less incendiary. And then the third problem I have, the other problem I have with it is that the terms of the justification, the, state, the, the UK government had to issue a statement of reasons uh, to accompany this, this order. And the reasons that are given um, are very, very wide. So uh, the, the, the conditions for Use of the power are not entirely clear, and precise parameters of the power are, have not ever been tested. But they're they're going for a very wide interpretation of of the circumstances in which it can be used. Um, and it does worry me that you know once once the nuclear option is is out of its box, as it were, you know, 
it, it becomes much easier to, to use it again. You know, taking the long, the, the long view, Scotland has always had its own legal system. The UK government, UK services have always had to deal with areas of law that differ uh, in Scotland and in, in Northern Ireland. And of course, it's inherent in the very nature of the evolution that those differences will increase rather than reduce. So I think if, if you're, you know, if, if you're using arguments like that to justify intervention, then that suggests a very, very low threshold for for the UK government stepping in. Finally, I just want to ask, I mean, you've, you've been a, a constitutional scholar for many years, but did you ever in your wildest dreams expect these sometimes rather arcane constitutional debates to be quite as prominent both politically and in the media as they've become in the last few years? I mean, this, the short answer to that is, is absolutely not. When I started teaching <laughs> constitutional law back in the early 90s, when you had to you had an uphill struggle to persuade law students that constitutional law was a proper law subject at all, because we spent a lot of time talking about politics. There wasn't a huge amount of law in there. And big constitutional cases were uh, were a real rarity. But that, that started to change with uh, the, the new Labour constitutional reforms um, post-97. In terms of devolution, though, and, and certainly in Scotland, although there were some cases right from the, from the word go, the really high-profile cases uh, didn't start to happen until the 2010s onwards. So it took quite a long time for, for the kind of potential of the legal constraints in the in this information statutes to to really be picked up on, um, I mean it, things have obviously changed now. Um, challenges to Scottish Parliament bills are very very frequent. It's different in Wales and and in Northern Ireland, but it's becoming very very frequent in Scotland. People have become alive to the possibilities of all of these constraints. I think something that was really interesting about the gender recognition reform bill was the way in which opponents of the policy were uh, aware of the competence constraint you know, really from an early stage and actively lobbying for UK government intervention. Um, and, you know, the rise of crowdfunding has made it much easier for a wider range of people uh, to, to mm. challenge decisions they don't like. It's no longer just the preserve of wealthy individuals or companies or, or, or you know, well-funded pressure groups. Um, crowdfunding really, really democratizes the ability to use the courts to advance your political ends. And that, of course, that, that's a good thing, but it's not, it's not an unmitigated good thing, um, in my view. And it's something which bears much more heavily on the devolved level than it does on the, on the UK level, just because they're, uh, they're subject to so many more constraints. I think the other issue that's, that's in the background here is, is the constitution itself is much more contested. Um, you know, we used to think of the UK constitution as as stable. I mean, sure, flexible, but where change took place in a kind of fairly incremental uh, incremental way, and there was a sort of fundamental commitment to to the rules of the game, and that that seems to have gone. Um, and that the the result of that is much more disputes about constitutional matter. Aileen, thank you so much for taking the time. That was really, really interesting. There's a lot of other stuff we could have gone into, so I think we're going to have to have you back one day, if you don't mind. Thank you so much. That was great.